Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. John Hendricks is a much-decorated illustrator and author and a professor of art at Washington University in St. Louis. His most recent book, The Faithful Spy, is a graphic novel telling the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the plot to kill Adolf Hitler. I don't think of myself as a fan of graphic novels, but I love this book. It won a gold medal from the Society of Illustrators. John Hendricks, I am so happy that you are uh, on the Habit podcast. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing... Uh, what you have to say about visual art and writing and how those things um, uh, work together, play off one another, that sort of thing. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, I have it's kind of a, well, I would say it's an unspoken policy, but I'm about to speak it, um, that the the um, this podcast isn't like for promotion of books or projects, but rather we're just going to talk about writing. But I've got to make an exception because I am crazy about um, about your most recent book, The Faithful Spy. I think it is so good, and I hope a million people read it. I think it's an important book, and um, and I just uh, I really love this book that tells the story of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his um, the choices he made. Um, so thank you for, for making that book. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that um, it connected with you. And, of course, anytime we make stuff um, – you know, there's the love of, of making it, of course, and that's probably what we would tell people when they ask why you do things. But ultimately, you, you actually want someone to read it and, like, connect to it. Um, so it, yeah. it always means a lot. I always tell people that you should always tell authors when something they did connected with you, because that's really, deep down, that's what they want. You yeah. know, more more than more than just sort of um, general praise. You right. know, they're like, oh, you're really good. What we really want is, like, Oh, that that made me see something in myself or others of the world that was totally different, and that connection is really what we're writing for, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think of myself as being a, a graphic novel person, and um, but that one really grabbed me. And so many of my favorite, you know, uh, books or movies or whatever um, – are the kind of thing I, that I think of as not being my kind of thing, and then when when it <laughs> yeah, pushes through, you know, when when that when something of that genre pushes through to me, yeah, it becomes one of my favorite things. That's that's what, that's the way I feel about. It's not that I dislike graphic novels; I just don't think about them much one way or another. It's just not you know uh, what I typically read, and, and the fact that that one pushed through my prejudices and uh, and really captured me um, is just one of the things I love about it. So thank you for for doing it. What, what yeah, made you, why did you why did you choose to write about um, write and draw about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Well, um, to me, the story I loved I loved Dietrich's writing. That's where I first came to it. Mm-hmm. I read his works in college. Um, I, I didn't get into the meaty stuff. I read uh, you know Life Together and Cost of Discipleship. I mean, actually, those are very meaty, but uh, <laughs> the sort of theologically <laughs> the, the dense works I did not get into. Uh-huh. Um, but and I knew his story tangentially, and a few years ago I saw the movie Valkyrie when it came out, which was that Tom Cruise movie about the Stauffenberg plot. And you know, I, I was I assumed that the, most of the movie was um, sort of fictitious or exaggerated. And as I looked into it, I saw it was like 
actually extremely accurate and and totally compelling. And it, re- it reminded me of the Bonhoeffer story, and I was like, this this really needs to be made. Not not for a, like a big world purpose, but just like I was interested in his story. It, it intersected with some of the themes that I encountered in some of my other work. Uh, and this was like 2000, I don't know when I started thinking about it, but it was probably five years ago at least. And I mean, the great thing about um, my work at the time is I had already started exploring some of these themes in picture books, which is pretty challenging as a format to try to explore some of these morality ethics questions. Uh, and in many ways, I knew I couldn't do Bonhoeffer in that format. It was just too small. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started to explore the idea uh, with my, my agent, actually. She was the one who said, well, just write for middle grade, like write a long, you know, a novel. Uh-huh. And I was like, wait, I, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm an illustrator. I'm not qualified. And she's like, of course you can do that. Huh. So, um, yeah, that's that's how it started. And she, we, we started pitching sort of this quasi-novel, quasi-graphic novel mashup. And, yeah. uh, and Abrams was keen to take it. Do you know how your uh, agent knew that you could do that? <laughs> well, I, I, said, I, I think I asked her about that. She was like, well, I just you had written good stuff before it just, she said some version of just write more of it, you know, (laughs) which that, that does seem rather simple, I guess. Um, but I think she also knew that I had a real vision for what the book would feel like. And that the idea that, Oh, quote, I'm not a writer is not something that should, you know, hold you back. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, I've never, you know, trained as a writer. I mean, I spent so much time training as an artist and, author, like training as an author or something, but not a writer. Mm-hmm. And so I was intimidated by the actual craft. Um, but of course, I had I had a wonderful editor who I've worked with uh, for many years. He's, a, he's edited all my, my authored works. And so I really trusted him. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't be, as almost any author says, some version of this, but like, it would not be this, the book it is without my editor and my copy editor. And so I'm very grateful to their help and anytime you go through the first pass where they catch these grammatical errors that are just like egregious um it's very it's very embarrassing and so yeah i'm thankful um so i i i guess you had to to get it uh clean 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 before you ever did the the lettering right i mean is that is that how that works you you Oh man, I yeah, I wish I'd gotten it clean. I, the thing is, we ended up. I had a, originally imagined hand lettering the whole thing because I wanted it to feel like a sketchbook. Uh-huh. That just proved impossible. I did one page hand lettered. It was almost a whole day of lettering because by the time I cleaned it up and everything, I'm like, I cannot do 200 pages like this. Uh-huh. So I, I hired a typographer to build a typeface out of my um, handwriting, uh-huh. and it has a bunch of alternate what are called glyphs. So like each A has four A's in it. Gotcha. And they swap out randomly, so it looks more hand drawn. So fortunately, the text corrections were pretty easy to do, with the exception of sort of splashy display type. Okay, I didn't you 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 fooled me. I thought that was hand lettered. Oh, good. That was the that was the whole point. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad. Well, good. All right. So moving on, um, I want to talk about so so since you have written a book that is. As much, you know, it's it's equal parts visual and and written. Um, talk to me about about that about the relationship 
you know, between visual art and and writing? You know, what did you, what is your experience as a as a visual artist? How has that shaped your your writing? And uh, we'll start there. And if 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 uh, yeah, the floor is open. Well, I you know people always ask what came first, the pictures or the words, uh, and it's kind of the same with like you ask a songwriter. It's kind of like well, it's kind of both and you know mm-hmm. or. In this case, I, I really had to get a pretty clean manuscript um, before I could drop it into the pages because obviously each page is so customized in terms of its design yeah. that I can't blow more text onto the next page if I write too long. Right. So it was it was really organic and early on. Um, I did little thumbnails, and there were certain images that I had from almost the first moment I thought of the project. I'm like, it, there has to be this thing in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. But from a like conceptual point of view, I really don't in my, in my work consider a line between text and image, mostly because my images have so much text in them. Right. So I really love the sort of incarnational aspect of, of you know, the word becoming flesh, you know, like yeah. the word and image being completely uh, intertwined. Uh-huh. And so I, I write and create with that, with that idea um, that the that the text is not captions for the pictures, right? You know, or they don't. That then the images don't explain the text necessarily, but they're doing something independent, which then creates this kind of new third space. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's something about about the way that particular book works. Uh, rem, uh, I may be stating the obvious here, but it, it it's like shape poetry, you know. Um, right. Yeah. And um, I. Uh, I have a soft spot for for shape poetry too. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that. There's this Annie Dillard book um, where she did. It really changed my mind about writing or what writing could be. It was called Mornings Like This, and it was all poetry that was found. She she uh-huh. just like collage, it's poetry collage, uh-huh. and um, you know, thinking of writing as not creating words but as a curator. Um, like totally changed the way I think about writing because that's kind of what I do with images and words together. It's like I, I don't think of myself as writing beautiful sentences as like curating a collision of word and image together. And then it's not so it's just not so intimidating, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Um, George Orwell in uh, in uh, what is that essay? The Politics of the English Language. I don't know if you've read that, but but he he says. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, it's a mistake as a writer to start with words. You, a, a writer, to the extent to the extent that you can, you need to start with images and then go find the words that depict those images. Um, and I mean, he wasn't talking about you know writing graphic novels. He was talking about if you if you start with the words, the words take over, and and these sort of preformed phrases cliches, whatever, will sort of take over for you and do the thinking for you. Um, and his his advice is, to the extent that you can, think in images first and then fit words to those images. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that to me seems like great advice. I don't always know how to help other writers implement that advice. Um, I wonder if you have any insights on that from your I mean, I totally resonate with that. I, I 
partially because, and yeah, I'm sort of cheating in this, but I, almost everything starts with imagery or images in some way. Uh-huh. Um, and I always think about that Lewis quote where the Narnia books came out of not like some big idea or notion or like I shall write an allegory about Christianity, but yeah. that he saw this fawn walking through the snow by a lamppost with a package. You know, and he's like, i got to figure out where that came from. Yeah. So I do believe that is completely true. Now, how you cultivate that as a discipline um, or as a way to access when you are stuck. I mean, I think I'm a firm believer in sketchbooks, and that doesn't mean just for drawing. I mean, writers can keep sketchbooks because I, I just fundamentally believe that our best ideas come from actions and not like thinking necessarily, mm-hmm. at least in the art world, you don't, I mean, yes, you can come up with a good idea, think it's great and then execute it with your hand. But usually for me, like the thing that I start drawing with is not the best idea. And that the act of drawing, the act of having my pen in motion on a sheet of paper triggers new ideas and associations that in a way that just thinking in a blank room with beautiful music would not do. Now, that's probably because I'm visual and the kinetic action of my hand drawing is almost like a muscle memory. Yeah. But I, I do think writers can do exercises that are not writing necessarily, but that will help produce imagery in a way that's like low pressure, mistakes are expected, uh, and you're just like in sort of generation. You're like in a generative state rather than a production state. Uh, tell me about the distinction between generative and production. Well, like I'd say, you know, when you're sketching in your sketchbook and you're just there for enjoyment of drawing and like, oh, I kind of want to draw a bee right now and, oh, look at that great cloud, um, you know, you're just generating things. And then maybe, oh, man, the bee and the cloud merge and you, you create a sort of new thing from it, right? And then production is where you're like, I have to get a result at the end of this. Yeah. And when you combine those two things, it's a disaster mm. because you're like, you're like, oh, no, I need to, at the end of this, I have to have a page of comics and they have to work. Yeah. And so that's a very different activity than I'm trying to create something. So you have to, like, create and then evaluate in two different places. It's just that, the, and we conflate editing and creation the same activity and it makes people insane because that's not, yeah. those are not the same activity. Yeah. Um, I, um, I often... I mean, I often talk about producing, and this, your your remarks here give me reason to um, maybe reconsider that language, because um, I, I mm. like that. I mean, I think that's a helpful distinction you're making, and um, so do, duly noted. I'm filing that away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bet you could uh, you could wordsmith it a little bit. Maybe it's it's less production and more um, almost like performance. You know, because yeah. uh, like we can produce things that are brainstormy ideas, but I think there's a pressure that comes with cert- with artists, and I'm sure with writers too. That's like now is when I will perform the act of making good writing. You know, or yeah. and and it's, it's a very weird. It's like a head game you have to play with yourself. Uh, at least for me, I, I have to sort of take the stakes down of what I'm making in certain places so mm-hmm. that it, it doesn't become too precious. Sometimes I'm not very good at at, at doing um, lino cuts, but I but I do lino cuts sometimes, um, mm. and I find that very helpful. Um, it makes me want to go write something whenever I whenever I do a lino cut. And and for me, a big part of it is, um, I just like doing something. I, I know when you're writing, you're doing something with your hands, especially I write with a pen on paper, so that is doing something with your hands. But but. 
I just, I really like every now and then doing something, you know, making something that has a, a physical artifact. And that, that feels like an important uh, stimulus for me to go write something. Oh, yeah, I, 100%. I mean, if you ask me, I think there is something hard-coded into our mind about making physical things that is so satisfying and unlocks, like, part of our humanity. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the digital world has flattened that where we don't get the same satisfaction of... I, I always tell, like, I have students that I, I direct them to, like, you need to go and fill a page with, like, tiny circles. Like, mm-hmm. you need an activity that is slow... Yeah. And methodical and requires patience because it it requires us to slow down to a pace that our brains think at or something. Uh-huh. So, and I think that lino cut is like that, where you like it's this process. You see the results. It's satisfying. It's slow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I my, my old uh, MFA instructor Marshall Harrisman used to call um, that sort of stuff rain dancing. It's like the thing you do to get the work. It's like, you know, we all have different rain dances that we perform before we make the real art, whether it's like cleaning your studio or like whatever the thing, we probably call it procrastinating, but I actually think it's like key to the process because whatever it is, it's like slowing our brain down enough that we're ready to enter into the art making or something. Hmm. Yeah. Do you do um, uh, electronic? Are you doing your your stuff with computers or or is it always with a... Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I use it's kind of a blend like you know the drawings and faithful spy were all made uh by hand with pencil on paper but then the color was all digital i I edited them all digitally so it's a it's a process i end up spending you know some time on the drawing table and some time on the computer Mm -hmm. so so when you are writing a a book like the faithful spy um i got the feeling from what you were saying earlier it's it's all covering the same part of your brain the the words and the and the images it's not that you're working two parts of your brain is, is the way you think about it is that is that fair to say it's all the same oh yeah part of your brain? yeah I, I feel like it's an extension of how i think about things so mm-hmm. yeah it did, did not feel like two different languages yeah yeah um i was i guess this was on your your oh no a, a video on your website where you just you're, you're taking a couple of minutes to to talk about. I don't remember what you're talking about, but you just you talked about how as a child you just wanted to draw more than anything. Or I guess maybe not just as a child, probably still. Um, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you put any language to wh- why? I mean, why is it that you want to draw so so bad? It, you know, this is such an interesting question, and I ask this with my students all the time because I think it is so revealing. Like. Why are we compelled to make this stuff? And a question I often have them think about is, if it, there's no right answer to this, but it tells you something about yourself. If you were on a desert island alone with all of your art supplies, would you still make art? And, and what kind of things would you make? And what I think that is helpful to think about is how much of art making is for yourself and for the enjoyment and how much of it is for communicating to the world and to other people. You know, and for me, taking the component out of it that I'm not allowed to speak to the world with it takes out a huge chunk of why, what I love about art making. Mm-hmm. So for me, I mean, I love the act and the physical pleasure of drawing and making lines and satisfying shapes and colors, but what I like even more is saying something to people. 
So to, to remove that is a, is a big change in what I would think about why I make things. So I've always had a love of just the sort of wall of stillness you can put around yourself when you're drawing and that it's, it's kind of always a place you can escape to when you're bored or in a meeting or, you know, when I was young in church, I could always find a place of imagination and enjoyment kind of within myself. And that was very satisfying, Uh but I did not make those things to go into a vault. You know, I wanted other people to see them and I wanted it to say something to people. So I, I think it is both pleasure and enjoyment and, you know, in some cases a kind of worship and, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, wanting to, to say something. Yeah. So if you were on a desert island, what would you make? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I would probably end up doing things like uh, Andy Goldsworthy. You know his work? No, I don't know he his is work. A, uh, you might, once I describe it, you might recognize it. He is a nature artist, and he goes throughout the woods, and he'll, like, arrange leaves into these beautiful geometric like starkly geometric shapes or he'll build ice sculptures or uh-huh. he'll take a bunch of twigs and turn them into a, a house and just leave them in the woods. And they're so haunting and beautiful. I think I would probably turn into some sort of like Tom Hanks on Castaway. Yeah, that's funny. Like I was I'd just be talking to a, yeah, I'd be talking to a volleyball and building like, you know, <laughs> coconut sculptures. I, yeah. I think it would just, I would want to make beauty. Like I would want to yeah. have the beautiful background. Yeah. Cause I, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. I don't think I would write if I was just writing stories that nobody else would see. Yeah, you see what I mean. Like if yeah. you think about it, you're like, well, no, I love writing, but then you're like, wait, well, who's it for? Is it just for me, or you yeah. know? It, it's very, it's very strange. Yeah, and so I think I, I feel like I would make lino cuts because uh-huh. th- those aren't good enough for me to be showing to people anyway, really, and I just like doing it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's a fascinating question. Or maybe like question. poems or something. Poems, you said? Yeah, maybe poems. You know, maybe like you would want something that would help you try to understand your experience, but not yeah. necessarily display it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, I've got a question for you that um, I don't know who else to ask. Um, when I am uh, – when I'm talking to my writers, my you know, writing students about um, – concrete sensory language and the importance of um, of writing in you know uh, writing in concrete terms and not letting things float off into abstraction um, one of the things we talk about is the visual sense is kind of low-hanging fruit you've got to you know it's really important that you uh, create a visual sense in your writing um, an aural sense also and then if you can work in into the other three senses that's that really makes things pop. You know, if, if you can if you can include smells or tastes or textures. Um, in other words, if you can get beyond the visual um, to some of those, um, the you got to have the visual almost always. You can't really function without it very well in writing. If you can include the other senses, great. Um, in the visual arts, do you have the option of reaching beyond the visual to the other? four senses oh yeah that's so interesting i mean in the in illustration so you're limited to i mean the thing that makes illustration illustration is that there's text associated with it you know um Uh so like you 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 know you don't an illustration that's hanging in a gallery without text is actually you know in some ways no longer an illustration Uh so it's it's an image um 
So I think it, in illustration, you're almost limited to the to the sensory of the page in some way. Um, but certainly in in performance art or art that occupies a physical space, you can start to touch other senses. I mean, in some ways, the comic is very interesting because it allows you to slide um, time differently. Hmm. Like you can you can play like when you're reading a sentence, you're always reading kind of at the same pace. But in comics. You can take one moment and and describe it in eighteen panels or two, oh, and yeah. the and the physical experience of reading eighteen panels actually changes time, yep. not just the narrative, right? So that that's one of the cool features of what comics does that like even film or um, writing can't do specifically. Uh-huh. And it's actually one of the reasons why I feel like I mean, there's kind of there's probably a whole like graduate thesis underneath this somewhere, but. The Marvel movies I find completely flat and uninspiring. Um, I mean, I enjoy them because my son loves them, and I think there's some mythology there that's interesting. But I think they worked like fundamentally in comics in a superior way because of the way panels work and the way that your brain closes the information, like Gestalt, you know, between yeah. the, like the gap between the panels. Uh-huh. And I think that allowed I think that allowed the mythology of superheroes to to resonate in like a bigger way. There's something about seeing the real Iron Man on the screen that deflates him in some weird way. I've never, I've never been able to articulate exactly because most people I tell they're like, whatever, I love it. It's awesome. You know, Uh but I I can't explain it, but I do think they were better in the comics. That's interesting. So no, no matter how big the spectacle in a Marvel movie, it can't keep, it can't catch up with the, what what your mind can do with the gaps in a comic strip. Yes, and I think it's one of the one of the reasons why comics work as a medium. They're not like, um, well, you couldn't do an animated movie, so you did a comic. It's not like uh-huh. a half stop before you get to something more lush, you know. Yeah. Okay. So so you've hit time and movement. Um, what about smell, texture? Yeah, te- uh, texture. You can do. Te- you can definitely do texture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could you could do. I mean, there's a lot of books that incorporate, um, you know, tipped in objects. There was these great books from the '90s called the Griffin and Sabine books. I don't know if you remember these. Mm-mm, I don't. And they were incredibly expensive to produce, but they ended up being like this sort of cult hit. And they were letters between two lovers, and the books were physically like had letters, physical letters stuck into them and slid into envelopes, and there were little artifacts that you found in each one. So it was like a completely, it was like a graphic novel almost. There were no pictures; they were just physical, actual letters that you were reading between these two people with uh, tokens in them, and you know, very expensive to produce, but they they were so interesting as a reading experience. Hmm. Um. Smell, taste. How do we? Uh, how does a, a visual artist incorporate those? Oh, you know, there, there was a. I remember an exhibit that had honey in it once. It was a. Uh, it was a taste and see exhibit. It was riffing on that sculpture on that uh, scripture passage, uh-huh. and it was a sculpture that you were you were asked to dip your hand into and get the honey hmm. and taste it, and then you were supposed to walk around while you were tasting the honey. Um, and of course, the whole that—that's an art experience that's designed to do that. You yeah. Know? But in general, I think that's pretty tough to do yeah, or right. to activate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to uh, one more thing. I want to ask you about that was off of you, that again from kind of poking around on your website that I found interesting, um, and that is the connection between 
um, place and a, an artist, a visual artist's style. Um, yeah, as writers, we're very conscious of how place, you know, where you're from shapes the way you write because, you know, idioms and and um, the changes in, in language from place to place. I'd never given any thought to the fact that that, that would also be true for uh, for an artist. And somebody, mm. you said one of your friends commented uh, when she visited St. Louis that, that um, some of your lettering, I think, was influenced by, you know, St. Louis signage and yeah. and you never thought it was about so, that. It, I'd never thought about it. And she is funny. She was from she's Japanese. We shared a studio for several years and she was in my graduate class together. So we knew each other pretty well and knew our work well. Yeah. But it was so funny. Instantly she's in St. Louis. She's like, "Oh, I know why you do all this shadow lettering because there's like this signage everywhere, you know, <laughs> like sort of what you would think of as like Midwest diner signage, you know." <laughs> And, and to her, you know, that's not something she had a lot of around where she lived. And um, so, yeah, I, it was stunning to me that that was something that maybe had seeped in that I was not even aware of. So, yeah, yeah I think you see it, of course, in landscape um, sure. and, you know, buildings, uh, all the things that you've seen around you influence how you how you draw and how you think about drawing. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. All right. Well, I always end these conversations with uh, with the question: What writers make you want to write? Well, it's such a good question. I, you know, there are a lot of writers that I read, and basically, I just want to give up. You know, yeah. like there's a certain there's a certain kind of writer that I'm like, okay, I I cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to I need to find something that feels a little more relatable. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for me, the, I, I think if, when I, the first thing that came to mind was I already, I already name-checked her once in this, but there was Annie Dillard I read in college, and um, she allowed me to see writing. I read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek um, on the recommendation of a friend, and it's kind of like a journal. It's kind of like observations, yeah. but, it, but it is so beautifully phrased, but, but it seems very approachable. It just I know she obviously is, a, is an incredibly gifted craftsman uh with her words but it has an approachability to it that seems so normal that yeah. it, it allowed me to think like oh i can see myself writing this in my journal and mm-hmm. i could be a writer you know yeah interesting you know and and uh i could imagine an artist loving that book because her attention to detail you know paying attention to to what she sees when when mm-hmm. people um go see what Tinker Creek actually is, they're astonished yeah. at how unimpressive right. it is. Yeah. <laughs> I've had people tell me that. And actually, I love it even more because of that. Oh, I you know. know. That's 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 a book that I'm not actually crazy about. It's one of those books that I'm more impressed with than I actually yeah. like. I mean, I'm impressed that she can do it, and but it, it just doesn't resonate with me the way it does with some people. But but I love the fact that it turns out Tinker Creek is the kind of place you would just go right past and never notice. And that she wrote this, you know, incredible stuff about it. Yeah, yeah, as if it's, um, you know, the, the mighty Atlantic or something. I mean, it's just so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, I, I uh, read that book and it gave me this whole paradigm for understanding the world as a person of faith, too. Uh-huh. And I was so taken by it. I in some ways I don't think I would do this today cause I, I'm not as naive, but I wrote her a letter, like just like a fan letter. Yeah. And uh, it, it's somehow I sent, I truly think I put Annie Dillard care of Harper Collins publishing uh-huh. and somehow it made it to her and she wrote me back 
Oh, that's uh, great. And I still have that. I have that photo, that letter framed in my uh, house at home because it always reminds me of like, oh, there's a real person behind this Pulitzer Prize winning, <laughs> like, beautiful book. You yeah, know, I, that's great. It, I always think about that. Wow. Well, John, thank you so much for taking half an hour to talk to me. This is uh, this has been a lot of fun for me. Oh, it's great. I'd love taking uh, 30 minutes to talk about big things and good ideas and uh, such a fan of you and your work. So well, keep it up, my friend. All right. Well, I, I will say the same to you. And uh, you're doing good work. And I, I really am thankful for what you're doing. So let's talk soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.